Did I read right that we're at the antitype, the Cupid antitype? antitype yeah. Of Cupid. Yeah, that's what I thought. Let me pull out the books. I read a little past that. This this is one of the harder books of Lewis to read, and it might be because it I'm, is. Yeah. Read, um, I haven't read what he's referring to yet, but this is supposed to be yeah. an introduction to it, though, right? Right. So, well, it's it's sort of a here's why you don't get it book. Here's the things about Spencer's view of the world that are different than yours. That so it's all it's focusing in specifically on the things about Spencer's worldview that are different than modernism. I mean, the fact that you've got types and antitypes, Christians talk about types and antitypes. Sometimes if you get deep into uh, exegesis and maybe, uh, maybe, maybe, right. But here he's talking about types and antitypes of the son of a pagan god (laughs) right right like this is um within a work of christian literature so the the types and antitypes of cupid um as a symbolic as a as a literary character uh, um as a uh, a semi-divine character you know a supernatural character of some sort and then um as a as as symbolism right so as you know in the story but then also the symbol the type and anti-type of the symbolism um of of cupid and venus right because he spends a bunch of time in this chapter talking about venus the anti-type of venus okay so before we get um too far into this I want to, I was listening to, have you read the book, The Fourth Turning by Strauss and Neil Howe, or yeah, I think Howe is how you say it. Okay. So I haven't, no. Are you familiar with the premise at all? Uh, Um, No. Oh, so it's the idea that um, there's a, there's so much to this. I'm just in the beginning, still trying to put it all together, but there's an idea that there's these um, cycles in life, 40 year cycle, but 80 year cycle. And each cycle is based off the previous generation's, um, understanding. So you have hero and you have, um, kind of profit, um, okay. Generational setups. Anyway, I'm still going through it, trying to get a better understanding of it in the only through the first or second. I've read the book before, but I was like sleep reading it. You know how you put a book on it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You, you like you're listening to it, but you're not. So I'm going through it again. But I remember the basic concept, and there's these these cycles in life, and every generation goes through these four cycles. This book was written back in '97, I believe, and they basically said, "Look, you're going to come to this cycle in the 2020s, 2025, where something big is going to happen, and the culture is going to have to uh, make a decision on either extreme war or extreme um, work, or you know, s- figure a way out of this particular." catastrophe and they okay. mark catastrophes based off of 40 year cycles you know um which actually if you start paying attention it's like actually it's, it's not it's not far off right like you start seeing these catastrophes line up um it's like 40 year 80 year cycles but anyway so i was going through it this morning and listening to it and he hit something uh i think i have it here i'm gonna try and play it for you and 
anyway, I, I just wanted to get your take on it. Let me see if I can find the right spot here. Hold on. So he, he goes and talks about Jungianism. And so yeah. he's basically building off of Young. Hold on, I'm trying to find this part for you, though. Dates, you will find that the first birth year of each generation usually lies just a couple of years before the opening or closing year of a crisis or awakening. Finally, notice the recurring pattern within each seculum. The first generation comes of age with an awakening, while the second has an awakening childhood. The third comes of age with a crisis, while the fourth has a crisis childhood. Each of these four locations in history is associated with a generational archetype, prophet, nomad, hero, and artist. Throughout Anglo-American history, with only one exception, the Civil War, when the hero was skipped, these archetypes have always followed each other in the same order. Due to this recurring pattern, America has always had the same generational constellation during every crisis or awakening. That is, the same archetypal lineup entering the four phases of life. But what are the archetypes that are so predictably created by their location in history? How do they function? How do they relate to each other? Why do they lie so near the heart of mankind's interaction with history? Answering these questions means journeying back to the ancient doctrine of quaternal temperaments and to the great myths that arose alongside them. In the view of Swiss psychologist Carl Jung, certain symbols, aspirations, and behavioral modes, archetypes, are biologically hardwired into mankind. In all eras and cultures, he said, these archetypes have become so deeply embedded in mankind's collective unconscious that no degree of progress, real or imagined, could weaken their grip. Identifying these archetypes by probing dreams and myths, Jung fashioned his theory after the ancient quaternities. His four archetypal functions draw energy from the dynamic antagonism between two sets of opposites, thinking versus feeling, sensing versus intuiting. When one function dominates the psyche, its opposite is necessarily suppressed as the psyche's shadow. Though archetypes are ordinarily applied only to individual personalities, they can also be extended to generations. Like an individual, a generation is shaped by the nurture it receives in childhood and the challenges it faces coming of age. When it assumes a persona, a generation, like an individual, can choose from only a limited number of possible roles, each prescripted by a societal collective unconscious. Myth is the raw outline of the archetype itself. In any era, mythical archetypes assist people's understanding of who they are and what they should live up to. Boom. I was like, whoa. Like, we've talked about this before. But I wasn't yep. expecting it to show up on a book on the fourth turning. Right? I, right. I, I wasn't expecting that kind of conversation to talk about, oh, societal it's turns and it's flips and it goes back and there's retelling the same stories over and over again, um, just in different, um, different formats. Right. But it's still telling the same story and it's telling the story based off of the myth that's set before it. And I couldn't help but think about the conversation that you had when we were talking um, about George Grant and you said, the thing that really messed you up was like, hey, George, you somebody asked George Grant if it was true. And he's like, he's like, does it matter? Because what's in, the important thing is what does it make you want to be? Right. And that's what he's right. it's like. There is a certain narrative that is there to define your your metaphysic. 
there's a there's a myth that's there to define your metaphysic, who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do in that moment. And that's what all stories are doing in one way or another is defining your metaphysic. Right. And and somehow we've lost the understanding of that. And and that so that, that's kind of like and uh for me, anyway, the, it fills into this whole conversation right now because we have the social media platforms have created the ability to actually have control over the myth. I think, I think what it is is that it's what it's revealed is that there is a whole there's competing myths sure and that there that the myth that that the that there's a bunch of people that believe the traditional myths and then there's other people for whom that it's already been completely undermined so there is and what that means is we don't have a culture anymore We've, you've got a whole bunch of different cultures because you've got a whole bunch of different myths. Instead of one unifying one. One unifying myth, right? So uh, the, the, you, the breakdown of the unifying myth is, I think, what we've found, it, what, what's been revealed. Because you can't, I mean, you can't even, um, you know, you go on Instagram or Facebook or wherever and you know, say anything and immediately there's somebody that shows up and is like you're a moron how could you possibly believe in that and a bunch of other people jump on and say but that's what i believe too and then other people jump on and say well then you're all idiots you're all morons right that that the the gut level assumption um about reality is what's defined by our myths and so when you've got a bunch of different myths it's it, it's i mean you have babble is what you have Right, right. So I'm trying to find this clip. So I'm going to try and build a context here, too. I'm just playing all kinds of clips for you today. Yeah, but but this is why I've said here it goes. over and over, Carl Jung is the guy that we, that as conservative Christians, we need to be ready to yeah. interact with, right? Because Carl Jung is the one who is actually, I think, um, uh, set and ready to come inform a Christless conservatism with a new set right. of, of uh, with, with a new unifying worldview. And I've been saying that for a while and everybody's been ignoring me. And so now all of a sudden, like Jordan Peterson's like, guess who it is. And I'm like, ah, June. Yeah. There goes. Well, there <laughs> I saw was, that coming before him. Was there a youngian that would have fit inside of what you were talking about? I don't think there was one. Uh, uh, there was the hero with a thousand faces guy. Um, but he was, he was fringe, right? You had right. this fringe hero with, uh, he, uh, my, that's my, my books, my hero with a thousand faces book is upstairs. He is, uh, Joseph Campbell. So you had Joseph Campbell before this, and all the artists were reading him. Um, mm. And he was he was Jungian, and so that's why I was saying well, the artists are reading him, and the artists are 
and I got this from Schaefer, the artists are are popularizing yeah. Campbell and Young. And so we know that it's going to be that's going to be the next thing in politics. If it's what's informing the artists of one generation, it will inform the politics of the next generation. That's the way it, it's always worked. So um, the so it, so it wasn't rocket science that made me say, hey, I better go start studying young. He's going to be the guy. It was studying enough, he, listening to enough interviews with artists and you know the the major guys, the major players that were guiding the artistic conversation, and they were all pointing backwards to to young. And I was saying, so I said, oh, well, that's going to be the guy that we need to be ready to answer. He he is providing a cohesion to the worldview of the artists. And so he's going to be the one that they go to for a cohesive worldview for politics next. OK, I want to go ahead generally. So there's the new Disney's Snow White. It's um, been following the trend of Disney to become woke. Um, oh, I I haven't seen anything about it yet. I, well, here's here's so I I was I saw this clip first, and then I was turning on the fourth turning and listened to what we I just played for you. Okay, and it brought this clip to mind from the she's being interviewed. Her and uh, what's the Gal Gadot? Who is Gal Gadot? Gal Gadot. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. She's uh they're both being interviewed, and she says is Gal Gadot playing Snow White. Oh no! I think it's another girl. Um, okay, Gal Gadot looks too white to play Snow White. So yeah, I was gonna, I was going to say that's not a bad <laughs> casting choice, Gal, Gal Gadot. If, but... if you're trying to stay white, yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's right. All, All right. right, are they are they switching up Snow White? Uh, they she... are. Yeah. So oh. Snow White's she's a. Uh, it's funny. It's like she's she looks mixed, and so she's close. She's close. They're just like slowly sipping in. Like <laughs> yeah, she's kind of white. She kind of. You said you were bringing a modern edge to it on stage. What do you mean by that? I just mean that it's no longer 1937. And we absolutely wrote a Snow White. That she's is not going to be yeah. saved by the prince. She's not going to be saved by the prince. And she's not going to be dreaming about true love. She's dreaming about becoming the leader she knows she can be. And the leader that her late father told her that she could be if she was fearless, fair, brave, and true. And so it's just a really incredible story for, I think, young people everywhere to see themselves in. Snow White is running for president. So, so they just said we would like to not tell the story of Snow White. <laughs> no, that's not, I mean, that, no, it's not enough not to tell the story. They're going well, to, well, I mean, they're just telling a different story, obviously. Yeah, but it's still called Snow White. So, it, it, it'd be yeah. different if they made a story that was exactly what she said, but it wasn't called Snow White or anything like that. That'd be different. But the fact that they're climbing into Snow White, gutting it out. And then Trojan horsing it into your home is exactly the kind of thing that I think they understand about myths. Yeah, yeah, that that is exactly it. And I think myth and fairy tale are actually they actually function uh, in the same sort of way. The um, fairy tale is what you get when you need when you have you need stories to that function where myths myth used to function but you don't have a mythological worldview anymore to be able to say be able to say that the stories are true um so like they in the ancient world they actually believed in Zeus right so you a myth about Zeus uh could function as a true story 
when what happens when you don't when you no longer believe in that myth that that worldview wherein there are gods goddesses and such but you still need stories to function there uh, you get fairy tales right so fairy tales uh, f- function and functioned in the same sort of way they're the they become the archetypical stories of your people group right so the fairy tales of a particular people group become these are the stories that define good and evil and true yeah. and beautiful and right uh, it, it, this is why a story like george washington not cutting down or cutting down the cherry tree yeah. and then i cannot tell a lie was it was important as a fairy tale and people kept saying but it's not true so it doesn't matter it's a it's functioning as a fairy tale i don't think the original people that wrote it thought it was true they were saying the founder of our the, the founding president of our country told the was honest right be, therefore americans should be honest people we ought to be honest and that's what that story that's how that story informed the conscience or formed i guess the conscience of right. so, so that somebody if they told a lie they felt they felt shame when the lie was revealed oh, i'm not There's, american <laughs> right yeah i'm i'm not acting very american right that's that it was an american it's and uh i've been collecting old books of american tales american uh you know the the uh uh, stories of America, Amer- Americana, stories of early America for years, um, just to understand uh, um, the conscience of America, right? That Because that's really where it was formed and then passed down. The problem is that uh, the enemy, the enemies of the, of our conscience understand that you undermine it by going after those stories. Mm, that's, and you know what, that's, that's what, okay. And I don't think, as I was listening to her talk about, this is not 1937. It's interesting. Right. right? Okay. I got you. That just makes me so angry. (laughs) Okay. Why? Two reasons. One, that's not, that's that's a, a dumb relativistic argument it's not 1937 anymore we're so much better than they were back in 1937 when everybody was evil it's and everything was turned yeah. you know everything was and women were mistreated and you know, all of this we that 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 chronological snobbery that says because it was a different year we are the and we are therefore better um is so arrogant it's so arrogant you look at your grandparents and say um that way i mean the fifth commandment too isn't it yeah it is it is straight down the middle of fifth commandment um issue because um the that but it's a and and but then everybody nods along like that was a really good argument it's not 1937 anymore well it's like yeah (laughs) right it's not 1937 anymore that's not an argument but that's just disrespect. Um, yeah. So that that's anymore either, <laughs> right? But um, it, it's like saying, you know, well, this is what I'm doing today, and it's right. You know why? Well, because it's Tuesday. If it were Thursday, maybe it would be maybe morality would be different. But on Tuesday, morality's like this, right? The changing of time doesn't yeah. shift right and wrong, right? Right and wrong is something that has to do with are you. Um, are you acting according to your nature, the nature that God gave you or not? 
right? Or against it. And it sounds like they're acting, or I, I mean, I, you don't get enough of the story. Snow White's running for president was the guy's summary of it, um, of what they were trying to right. say. But you could be the leader she thought she they, that she knew she could be. She's not looking for some prince to come save her. And they're like, oh, that's great. So there's not going to be any, any, uh, uh, I see. I don't know. I don't even know the story enough to know. Is there a prince? Is there a prince involved? Yeah. Is yeah. this the um, end? Is this the end um, of a line? Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. not going to be any children because she's going to be so busy raising the country. She can't um, have children. And so yeah. then it's going to actually throw the the kingdom into chaos next generation when there's no um prince to take over uh, so <laughs> jason is turning red he's not uh, red as my i'm shirt. about to go i'm about to go shakespearean right i'll tell you this is this sounds like the opening monologue of the bad guy in a shakespearean tragedy interesting <laughs> i think so but i i think the uh, um okay so I, Here's the first thing I thought, just knowing the kind of conversation that we have. The first thing I thought was like, they want to destroy the gospel. That's the first yeah. thing that popped in my head. There's the first thing that popped in my head. And she's not talking about church. She's not talking about Christ. The first thing that popped in my head was they're, they're coming after, and they have been, the idea of a, a prince that saves a woman, right? And restores mm-hmm. her and then marries her and then has... And the post-millennial, the, the gospel because of the post-millennial, the, the post-millennial view because of the gospel, things will be better after that, right? After the woman is restored and risen from the dead, they're coming after death and resurrection. They're coming after the, and they're trying to do the same thing that the serpent did in the garden was beguile Eve to yep. get her to get out of her office. And it's like, and for me, I, I wish the part that bothered me was that I wish more Christians would not be so upset about the fact that Disney has gone woke because that's that's a reality. But yeah. that the, the myth that they're trying to recreate is they're trying to destroy the Christian true myth by coming yeah. after stories like knights and and princes and queens and you know and the the, the reality of killing the serpent. Like they they want to destroy all this, and so they they come through and just like oh, and we just we just kind of like okay, whatever. We just won't watch Disney anymore. But there's something bigger going on than just oh, we're making Disney woke. They're trying to create a world so that the gospel doesn't make sense in it anymore. Right. Yeah. That that the gospel sounds like bad news. Right. Hey, there's there's a prince here to kill the dragon. Oh, is we he trying to enslave women? Yeah. <laughs> Right. Wait. Uh, like what? Yeah. No, the dragon is enslaving women. That's that's literally that's what dragons do. They capture women. They put them in chains. They keep them at the back of their horde because they're the most valuable thing. And knights rescue women. I mean, this is why I wanted to do the Saint George when with the show we were talking about was because it's the story of a dragon who's who's uh, taking women. And a, and the knight that shows up to kill the dragon to rescue the women, right? That 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 story it's out of the book of Revelation. First off, mm. right? it's and it is also in the stars. It's literally the story of the constellations. Cosmos. It's the the you know you've got Virgo, you've got Draco, you've got you're you've got uh, the 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 story of the uh, the dragon that's 
that's going after the virgin that's being that's that's killed by the knight is in the constellations right it's it is god embedded it everywhere um and um the the when when a society is healthy those are the stories they tell when a society is protecting women those are the stories that they tell when a society goes wrong right they start telling stories about women warriors they start telling stories about uh women running nations <laughs> right women women running nations and right we the whole story of snow white what makes what the the whole point of it is everywhere that 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 woman goes the world goes goes right around her mm. the enmity between nature and man is solved by her uh righteousness right like she so it's you know, to act like she's not a hero in this story is is to not understand how it works right the animals come and call the the um the the men that are working only for themselves and only for wealth suddenly you know the dwarves they suddenly have a purpose beyond themselves and their work is no longer about greed and it's not, yeah right their their work is put right when sudden when she walks into their lives right their house then is put right when she walks into their lives everything she touches because of her uh because of her cheerful righteousness uh because of her uh, her loving countenance, everything she touches goes right, which is why the witch hates her, right? That's what the witch hates is that she's putting the world right. And there's no place in the world for uh, that witch. If, if Snow White uh, becomes queen, right? That's because everything that the queen, because she's going to be such a great queen that the, that the king, the kingdom will be put right because the king will be put right by his queen. Right. That's what's going on. And so when the prince comes and rescues her and takes her, he it, it is um, he's saving her so that she can turn around and save him and his kingdom. Right. It's, it's this is this is uh, this is the kind of story that is that that we want informing our imaginations that men need these stories to inform their imaginations. What kind of wife do you look for? Um, I mean, this is basically every Jane Austen novel uh, is, is marry, marry the right woman. And, and, uh, and your uh, life will be full of, of joy and prosperity, marry the wrong woman. And it, it will, everything will go wrong. It's proverbs. Yeah, it's, prover- it's proverbs. It's, you know, great literature uh, has to do with the, uh, so much great literature has to do with the power uh, of, with the kind of feminine power that uh, that God has embedded into a wise woman mm. uh, that puts the world right all around it. And that we protect that, we, that, that it's, it's a different kind of strength than the kind, you know, the, the atmosphere that a mother and a wife sets in a home makes all the difference. Mm. Right. That mm-hmm. um, now, and a husband also has set is an atmosphere setting power. Oh, a father is an atmosphere setting power, but in a different sort of way. He can't do what a woman can do, right. um, and a woman can't do what a man can do. Right. The, that that's the whole point of needing both a man and a woman to uh, to be on the same mission together. But the the, uh, the witch hates that. The serpent hates that. 
right, that the serpent goes after women, not just because it's an easy way to get to man, but because it's the, it's the, it's the strength and the power. It's the, that is, um, it, the the transformative strength and the transformative power is such that the the serpent can't fight back it, mm. it has to it has to separate them out because it can't fight back against that sort of power it's funny i was going to ask you what is the story of snow white i have it didn't hear you just like just went right through it like <laughs> i was like oh that's so good so then okay there's a couple things i want to i want to turn the corners to get to um c.s lewis because i think it fits right inside of here mm-hmm but but could you make clear for me the difference between a myth and a fairy tale? Well, I so the well so for a little bit of history. So the fairy tales that um, folk you've, you've got folk tales, yeah, fairy tales, um, and you've got myths, and they all sort of functioned in in that same sort of way, um, and the gathering up uh the grim brothers um yeah. uh, andrew lang in england they they began gathering up what kind of stories uh do our people tell do the german people and the english people and then they then um I believe andrew lang then went to france and gathered up the french fairy tales and um and so you begin getting um the fairy tales are uh the the myths of the people that don't really have a mythological quote unquote mythological worldview anymore, right? That um, you don't necessarily believe that um, it, you know, so for example, um, the story of Hercules cleaning out the stables uh, of the gods is a story that you have in the ancient world. Um, but, it, but when the Grimm brothers started traveling throughout Germany, um, and then when Andrew Lang traveled throughout the English speaking Celtic English speaking worlds, um, both of them found that that story was still being told. No one believed in Hercules. No one believed in the gods, but the story of Hercules being given the task the, the, uh, of cleaning out the stables in a certain amount of time, and he couldn't actually do it. Um, but then one of the gods or the go- God or the goddess of the river, um, he he ends up redirecting the river to go through the stables and so the stables are all cleaned out by him coming up with a uh with a clever way of accomplishing a task that he couldn't complete on his own right so that that story was still being told um and still functioned as a way to encourage young young people and adults hey be like hercules um be clever um and so sometimes you'll you'll have a task that you don't think it can be done but stop and think is there a clever way to accomplish it right so it's a way of informing uh the conscience informing what's true and right and good um uh, by by memorable beautiful stories so um the 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 stories that pass on survival information uh to be a good person or to be a, to have a good community, to have a society. These are the things you need. So that's one of the things that how myths function. Um, so, so uh, the, and then the other, the other way is they inform um, what kind of world 
we mm-hmm. live in. Mm-hmm. Right. So you've got both the society forming power of myths, right? And then um the cosmos explaining myths right so you've really got two so fairy tales tend to fall it's sort of all of the all of the ones that inform the conscience um right that are end up becoming fairy tales so most fairy tales have some sort of magic or you know the fairy um comes from the word fey which means like supernatural um but sub not but not divine right so beyond beyond natural but under divine that fey world the fairy mm-hmm. land um there's all sorts of creatures that exist there some of which are mentioned in the bible you know there are there are um you know satyr goat demons mentioned in the bible there's you know these vampire creatures from babylon that are mentioned in the bible you've got and then you've got dragons you've got all sorts of creatures that we think of as existing in fairy land, fey, fey land, that magical, um, uh, super supernatural means above nature. Uh, mm-hmm. It doesn't need mean divine, right? So, um, Christians, you can be a Christian. You you can you you. There are Christians that don't have a supernatural worldview. I think most of them, yeah. Yeah, most Christians don't have a supernatural worldview. They believe they they believe in the creator creature divide. So there's a creator, right? That um that exists above us, above nature, above the the created nature and not created nature, above um the normal way of doing things. Yeah. And then um there are angels in heaven, for example, but but that they don't think that you're going to interact ever with anything beyond just material nature That's yeah, they, the they don't think that, they don't think that maybe an angel might get in a fight with the devil over the body of moses or something like that right right yeah. or that you might pick up an angel on the side of the road right um you know, and not know yeah. and not know right you know, so um but then uh the but then there are people that have a supernatural worldview that don't believe in the creator creature divide Right, so they don't believe in what we would call divinity, but they don't believe in divine nature, which is uncreated nature. So everything is on the same scale. So God um, is—he's the most powerful of all of the things, but he's still a thing that exists right. on the the chain of being, the same sort of chain of being as us. Um, he just happens to be the most powerful. So this is Star Trek Five when you get to when they meet God, he just, they, they finally find God and he's just the most powerful of all creatures. Um, and they have to re, you know, I, I, if I remember right, they have to rearrange their rays in order to be able to hit him, but they can still hit him with the rays if they tune them right. How many um, were you able to watch in there? That's insane. <laughs> well, and there, and the whole thing is, well, he's not, they turn, he's not really God. He's just this creature that tricked a lot of, planets into thinking he was god but he's really just an alien you know um it's mormonism (laughs) (laughs) so but mormonism would be an example of they don't believe in divinity they have a supernatural world but they do have a supernatural worldview right so when you die your spirit 
continues to exist, your soul continues to exist, uh, um, and then it can become the god of another planet. Uh, so the divin- there's no divinity, there's no uncreated nature out there. Um, and they might they might posit one, but he's not he's not a part of their religion. So deists were um, they believed in divinity but he was so separate that there was no interaction with him. And so they could have a non, a non supernatural world worldview, but still believe in divinity. So they were materialists who still believed that a God started it all. Right. So, but, but Christians, we actually have a supernatural view of the world. There are beings beyond us, our, spirit it continues to exist when we die um and then has to be reunited with our body in the resurrection uh there are creatures in the world that are um beyond physical or non-physical maybe um and the and there are creatures that have and, and 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 because of that you can have physical creatures that end up with powers beyond just the normal physical powers uh we but we also believe in the creator creature divide, so we are closer to an angel than we are to God. Angels are not more like God than us. We're different kinds of creatures. The um, God is not a thing that exists on the chain of being. So we both believe in divinity, and we are supernaturalists. Um, so uh, a good example is a. Um, there was a, a Christian, um, oh man, it was a it was a Filipino martial art. Now I can't think of what it was, and he was a he he was uh, doing some uh, missionary work um, out east, and there was a, a oh did I lose you? Yeah, that's okay. It, I'll catch it. Hopefully, it kept recording. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. there. So here's an example of the supernatural worldview. So uh, there were. There was a, a Christian missionary who did, who was a martial arts expert who was out traveling, um, and in out east, uh, I believe in the Philippines, if I remember the story right. And there was a a, a martial arts guy who who taught uh, martial arts who also um, claimed or said that he he could control um, his chi his power such that he could extend it out beyond his body. And so he would go out and he would basically raise money and raise awareness for his martial arts studio by, um, by knocking people into a chair from a distance. So he would gather up his chi chi and shoot it across space and knock people over. Um, And this other, this Christian martial arts guy he said, hey, anybody volunteering? And he said, I'll volunteer, but I have to warn you that I'm a Christian, and so your demonic powers won't work on me because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. And so the guy, he's like, he laughs, and everybody kind of laughs, and he goes out there, and he gathers up his chi, and he shoots it, <laughs> and it doesn't do anything, and literally the guy can never do that thing again. He destroyed this man's powers because his powers had some sort of demonic entity behind it. And as soon as he tried to use it against a Christian, the demon fled and he <laughs> lost the power 
to be able to push people without touching them. Um, and it destroyed his martial arts practice and the the whole bit, right? Because all of a sudden, built, so that, yeah, yeah, it's like well, it, it was built. Yeah, it was built uh, on that, right? <laughs> so we're supernaturalists in the sense that we say, yeah, that that story makes sense, right? Um, the uh, the, the there are you know, you might run you run into um, you as as you you see hear this a lot with missionary stories and other places as well, but as you that Christians, as they've traveled around, have run into people um, that have made contact with demons and have demonic powers. Um, you know, it, I, I remember a, a, the a uh, and you know down in down um, in California there was a lot of uh, witchcraft and people trying to purposefully trying to get demons to give them powers, right? Right. So. You run in, you run into it. Um, so we, and we look at that and say, yeah, that, that makes sense of that. That makes sense in this kind of world uh, that there's powers beyond nature. Well, in uh, fairy tales, it's the, most of the time, the stories have to do with somebody that crosses the boundary, either from a land where, the, the land of creatures that have those sorts of that have connections to those sorts of powers um, to the regular world or from the regular world to the other world. Right. So you get um, witches, you get uh, you, you get people that are under curses, right? You, you get beauty and the beast, um, the prince that, ha that gets put under a curse. Uh, so the, that those power and, and the belief that those powers are true doesn't mean that people believed in the particulars of how it could be used. Mm. Um, but that, that, that in order to really understand the world and really tell the truth about the world, um, you, you could, there were, uh, that was up for grabs in terms of quote unquote, true stories, right? The fairyland, Um, and the, and that really grows because, we no longer believe in the mythological ancient world where there are um where there are gods um you know uh, that there's a series of divine beings right that there's a whole bunch of divine beings and they live up on mount olympus or they live you know um uh, up in the up in the mountains of japan or you know that they live that oh. there's divine beings up there um but um you know the the bible is closer to something like animism in the sense that there are spiritual beings all over the place uh in its view of the world but but animism is a not doesn't believe in divinity right animism believes there's spirits everywhere but there's not a divinity above it all right and so christianity is the mix between the two so um the stories that we tell then um, are the ones that inform us what kind of world we live in. So what, what we can expect um, the, the, those basic fairy tale stories um, that really function as myth. Well, the scriptures actually took over in the West, the scriptures took the place of the myths mm. that told us the origin story that told us where everything was going, that told us, um, what was what's wrong with the cosmos why the cosmos is broken and how the mm. cosmos is 
has been or will be put right right Th so those those mythological stories that give us the cosmological answers the scriptures took that role the fairy tales con continued the mythological the role that myths gave us or the role that myths had of informing our conscience we mm. used fairy tales for that and so some of that you know parables the parables function that way mm. in the scriptures um you know the 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 um some of the stories about you know david and goliath have taken on that that kind of role um but we you don't you but other stories in the bible you don't use in that mythological way so S samson solving riddles becomes a, a fairy tale but samson killing philistines with the jawbone of an axe never becomes a fit or with the jawbone of an ass never becomes a fairy tale right? right we don't use that story that way hey kids let me tell you what to do if injustice is done to your family mm -hmm. samson found the jawbone of an ass and he piled the bodies of his enemies around right we don't we don't tell that story as a fairy tale as a way of informing the conscience it is uh still part of our mythos in the, in the sense that we say this is what God has done for us. God raises up heroes. God raises uh, Christ is the new Samson. Right. The bodies, the bodies of you. Know, he puts everything right. The bodies of the demons were chained um, up in Hades because of Christ's work. You know, we that sort of thing. But um, it never became a a fairy tale informing the conscience of the next generation. So the the okay. Oh, we're going to get to this, I promise. So then when you see drift in your fairy tale because you have a mythos that's become um, another you mythos. Yeah, yeah you, you, the mythos has changed. The, the mythos, and because the mythos has changed, um, the... Uh, like I need, how would you put it? Because the mythos has changed, the morality is changing, mm -hmm. and so the fairy tales are have to shift. Them. Yeah, the you have you have to get. Is. Yeah, exactly. You mm -hmm. have you need new fairy tales to give new morality to in to form con the conscience according to the cosmos as you see it. Right. So, if you believe that the cosmos is um, about is a power struggle about power dynamics right if if you think foucault is right M machiavelli is right uh that the that the enlightenment was right it's a power everything is power dynamics then you need to retell stories such that snow white um instead of becoming the wife which is down the chain of authority she's not that's she's oppressed She's because of the of power dynamics. Um, you need to tell a story such that she, if she's going to be the hero, that she ends up being the one on top, pushing everybody else down. And, right? and so then, then they take. So then they're they're stealing from us. So then they take like your blackness and they say, okay, who's the highest minority group or who's the group that has the most equity? and being downtrodden currently and let's use them as our let's jam you let's use them as our yeah. gateway to get into this narrative yeah so and i and it. i and i think i mean and this is where you you actually can't escape jesus G because you don't have anyone saying 
I am so oppressed in the Old Testament. I I am the one being crucified here. I'm the martyr, as if that's a good thing in the ancient world. Right. It's all glory, uh, glory based on strength. Right. I'm pushing others down, therefore I get glory. You get um, you Homer, Homer would laugh critical race theory out of the room. <laughs> but, mm. You're the most oppressed, therefore you get you have power. You have power. <laughs> That's an interesting point. <laughs> but Jesus flipped the world on its head. Yeah. And the martyrs throughout history right. um, that right. have followed him have flipped the world on its head. And those stories have become part of our mythos, right? The um you you tell you tell the story of Polycarp, um, not the story of the of a governor who burned him mm. actually we don't even know the governor i mean somebody might know the governor who burned him's name but i don't um it, you know the name polycarp because yeah. the roman empire didn't survive the martyrdom of polycarp and so now it, it's it's as if the devil and the um or the left has learned oh martyrdom is where the power is and so they're claiming it because they're after power uh, the world has shifted, turned upside down. Um, and uh, so they're like, okay, got to climb to that side. And they're trying to, to hijack the now. now. Yeah. Yeah. It's oh, really interesting. So Christ comes in and changes the whole structure of the world and where the real power is, which is in humbleness, humility. The meek shall inherit the earth, right? Right. And it is. And that's what's happening. <laughs> and they're like, okay, how do we fake meekness as much as right. possible? Exactly. So power. Exactly. So they get up in your face and they scream, we're the meekest of all. Shut your face <laughs> until you bow down at the at the power of their meekness. And you're like, it's just it's weird, but it's it's the, the devil's always uh, inverting. Uh, clever. You know. That's really clever. Interesting. And so what's happening, too, though, is that when we see that then we don't really. We don't really know what to do when people really are oppressed, though, then, because they're like, oh, whatever. There's a, right. there's a callousness to us to not even acknowledge what real oppression looks like because we've been so abused with the term and the word from people who really aren't. Right. And that's exactly what it, you you get this weird thing where you see somebody being oppressed and you say, oh, man, that's messed up. And everybody's like, but is it real? Because there's so many fakes, right? There, it's, right. If you've got a thousand fake $20 bills and two real ones, nobody's going to take the two real ones seriously anymore. And, I, and that's really what's happened. And so the, the mythos now, or should I say, or the, the, the fairy tales now that have come out have organized in such a way that we see oppress, oppressor. And that's where critical theory, that, that narrative, critical theories come after that narrative has already been put in place. Some, it had to happen in some way. Yeah. And now critical theory is just capitalizing on that reality. Well, cri critical theory is the, all of the, uh, all, all of the people that look around and just recognize the, how the world works, how the world's currently working, right? The critical theory didn't, um, didn't change things, right? right. That what changed things was, the the immorality right the immorality of multiple generations yeah. um is what changed things and then you get critical theory come along and saying let me tell you how the new world works let me tell you about the new world order 
Okay, so oh, I can talk about this for so long because it's so it's so interesting. There's so many connecting pieces to it, and man, we mm, there is a. I keep thinking, I keep hearing Nate Wilson come back and saying, "We need more Christian fiction. We need yeah. more Christian stories. We need because there's far more. There's something going on in the shape of reality that." If we don't start fighting for it in that category, we're going to it's going to be a hard it's going to be a hard fight to 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 actually we're already having it even inside of Christendom. We're already having it inside of Christendom where the uh, the the world instead of us thinking about the scriptures as a foundation for reality and what our own symbols mean and what they really do and is now we're looking at from the secular side, and now we're reading that into the scriptures instead of because because of the the mythos is starting to change. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know I mean? and that makes sense. I I do. I, I think I think the myth. So you've got two things going on. You've got people trying to. So the the Christian in America the Christian mythos was first diluted by conservatives. Ouch. So we diluted the Christian mythos. Now what, what, en or what ended up happening was now you've got half of the people fighting for that diluted version of the mm -hmm. mythos. Yeah. Trying to restore it. And then you've got other people that are saying, Oh, but that was a diluted version of the mythos. We've got to we've got to drop the mythos altogether. Altogether, yeah, yeah. Rather than saying, um, but but as God does, you have people show up with the with the pieces of the mythos to restore in the wrong spots, right? They don't show up at the universities. They don't show up the at the places of power, right? You get, um. You you get a guy like um, Jay Vernon McGee, yeah, right. Yeah. Who, who he's got an, a disrespectable accent. He's he's got he 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 talks in that folksy way, um, and he shows up and and but it turns out that that guy is he he had the a really clear eye for understanding where the fake mythos was attacking. And how to defend it from the scriptures, right? Um, he was he was incredibly well educated and 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 had a huge impact for good on the church uh, in defending exactly those points of the mythos in his through the Bible. Yeah. His commentary on Leviticus is incredible. It's the strangest thing where you're like, he's a dispensation, <laughs> yeah, dispensational, this folksy dispensational Midwestern preacher um, who who is defending the cosmos from the oncoming hordes of orcs <laughs> and doing it really well. And um, in those, those points that, and, and is one of those places where he he's there unraveling the, the mythos from the Americana uh, yeah. the American mythos. Right. Um, and, and doing it really, really well and having a huge impact on the church and out of, out of his ministry ends up flowing, you know, the, the creation, creation, uh, defense, the, the, the defense of six day creation, the defense of, 
of the Bible as um, as not just without error, but the the Bible as the place to which we go for answers. Right out of out of his ministry ends up growing all of these different um, really incredible uh, mythos defending institutions. Mm. Right, you think that's not where I would have brought it in, but I also wouldn't have brought the Messiah in through, uh, um, you know, in through a manger, <laughs> right? You right. Know, um, where no one was looking. Uh, so, which is which is why the wise men go to go to uh, Herod, yeah, because that's where normal people expect that's where the supposed to be at. <laughs> that's where the word king, a king yeah. to be, right? Um, yeah, that's exactly right. right. So, um, and it's the same, you know, with, with things like the, the Jesus people movement, right? The number of um, incredible, uh, reformations that came out of that, um, is, is amazing, but it's not the right quote unquote, the right place for it to happen. Uh, Right. Um, so what we, what, um, I mean, this is why when you look around, and um and say man if well a couple things whenever i get you know i get to do um like a joint joint service with other churches or anything and everybody wants the sermon um i want the confession of sin right <laughs> like because it's the it because god has built a world where humility is the back door um that that lets in reformation, right? Um, right. And, and we don't, and we just don't understand that. Right. We, we want, we want the, we always think where's the point of power. Let's that it's up there. Okay. Let's go get it rather than yeah. Yeah. Uh, where's the back door. That's going to let the reformation in because that's what God has always done. Right. Um, is after the fact, we tell the stories of the heroes of the reformation as if it was, so obvious. <laughs> everyone knew it was going to happen. Like everyone knew it was going to happen. Like that, you can't. It was unstoppable. But but then you look at like wait, is a back a backwood backwater town of Germany on the edge of the Holy Roman Empire? Um, Germany? Can anything good can be can anything good come out of Germany? Yeah. Um, you know, it's the 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 the. I mean, Martin Luther was a country bumpkin. It, it, in terms of where he sat in the empire, right? He was in the wrong spot to be able to to uh, make any sort of reformation. But he got hold of the scriptures and he said, I'm not letting go, right? Mm. When he treated the scriptures, um, you, when, when, he, when he let the scriptures out of the cage and let them roar, as Spurgeon talks about, um, it doesn't matter where the lion starts eating, <laughs> It's it's gonna eat everything. You know, the, you, there's there's nothing to stop it. All right. So, I, so did I take you too far away from antitypes to the false cupid? I no, you never did. Okay. Should we, figure, should we figure out how to get back to it? <laughs> yeah. Well, here's the deal. So, can you kind of re? I was going back. I went back and listened to our podcast on the false cupid. Yeah. And, and so, man, God was so kind to us in that pod. I don't. Everybody needs to go back and listen to that podcast. First of all, oh, let me talk about real quick. Man, I went back and bought the book from Yuri 
and Joffrey on smoking. Yeah. Man, it's a good book. Isn't it a good book? It's why we don't push that. I just, that's a good book. It is so good from beginning to end. There's another couple books they reference in there that are also good too. You just need to go by. Everybody needs to listen to the podcast with Yuri. That was really great. Because in the one you talk about Nick Fuentes and that whole movement, it was just, ah. But, so I've been going back. I, I usually go back. So the way I treat Knox Unplug is I usually go back and listen to a show because I don't get it all, you know? And so I, I'll go back and listen to them. I listen to the one on Gnosticism. I listen to those multiple times, five, six times. <clears throat> and then the one on the false Cupid, I listen to now. This is probably my third time going back. Listen. Um, and then our live show, I'm third time going through that one again. The world ends with the metaphor is died. So I'm, but the false Cupid, man, as I was going back listening, I just kind of want to go through a, a just short recap of the false Cupid. Like, um, because uh, we used, it wasn't even on purpose, but we used uh, everything everywhere all at once in the, the spider across the Spider Verse. Yeah, to talk, and the idea was, um, love isn't love, and there's false loves that take you off course ultimately, um, and and they can give you that it can give. I don't even want to say feel. Is it right to decide define feel? you can feel as if they give you a false sense of feeling or is it false sense of feeling or is it, what, what would it be? I, I think it's, it's feelings that don't match up with reality. That's so right. False feelings is false how feelings. is. Yeah. But and, and the, the, the feelings aren't right. It reminds me of the charismatics in some way where there's like, they have false feelings and they're sincere, sincere, yeah. but it's not connected to reality or to the scriptures and so then what you end up doing is you still have to gin it up uh, in every way and then you have to make everybody else play a part to gin it up as well right and so um anyway but yeah, would you go through like a simple just quick like short recap of false cupid and then how the anti-types to the false cupid um because as i was going through and reading this i was i felt am i mm, it felt like that lewis was having a fight with authors Yes. Well, he's, he's, he is having a, he's having a fight with um, authors that are misinterpreting or misrepresenting um, Edmund Spencer. Okay. Because they're put they're they're, they're trying, they're reading him in the wrong context. And so his, his, it's a, it's a literary fight in saying you're missing what Spencer's saying because you're reading him from, from your as if he is writing in your context but let me help you understand the context he's writing in because it's something actually better that he's saying more important or you know restorative okay so and it and then this this is where lewis is just he's a humanist who's like we have to it even if you end up saying something that is true and getting it from spencer if it wasn't what spencer meant we still should work until we get understand what Spencer meant. We can end up disagreeing with Spencer. That's fine. But we have to work hard to make sure we are understanding what he the author meant. before we judge whether he's right or wrong. And mm. so a lot of this is him dropping, dropping the found or laying the, the intellectual foundation of Spencer's age, laying the concrete again, because people's interpretations of spencer has gone wonky yeah 
And so he says, let me lift up the house, lay the concrete from that time period. And so then the house will set and everything will straighten back up. And then we can judge whether or not he was a good architect or not. Mm. But we can't put the house on a on on a, the wrong foundation so that part of it's hanging off the end and then say that was the architect's fault. Okay. You so, can, but it's not that you don't judge the architect, right? The no, architect yeah, yeah. still might be bad, but you should put the house on the foundation that it was intended to be on. Judge him and, rightly, right? Yeah, judge him rightly. And so the false Cupid, first, he, it's something that he says it's you can actually track um, through literature that Spencer didn't just invent out of whole cloth this idea of the false Cupid. But that what the false Cupid is, is the um, in in existentially right in our experience the false cupid is that the feelings of love that don't lead you to beauty Mm. and so therefore they don't lead you through to goodness right so you see that something is beautiful and i just saw somebody saying something about this you know uh, about their wife i can't remember who i think it was michael foster he was saying you know when i when I first saw the woman I ended up marrying, it was her natural beauty that drew me like her, you know, external beauty. I, I thought, man, that girl's cute across the room. What has kept me in love with her is her, the, the internal characteristics of beauty that turned out to match the external beauty. The false Cupid is when you um, get to, when you see something from across the room, and you think, ooh, I'm attracted to that because uh, because it's beautiful. You know, and that feeling of love draws you towards it. But as you get closer, you realize either the beauty is false or the beauty is thin. And that there's an ugliness underneath it. A, an, a bad, a, there's a badness, a, the, a lack of moral goodness. No um, virtue. That, yeah, no virtue underneath it. So you end up it it the 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 outs the external beauty um or the for the the circumstances that caused you to fall in love uh led you instead of leading you to something virtuous led you to something invirtuous, right? So that's the, that's the false cupid. Um I mean it's it's the principle of it's the principle that you know pornography works on or playboy works on whatever you know um i was just talk- talking to somebody about uh, the, about bill cosby right mm-hmm. they were like hey do you think bill cosby was guilty or innocent and um and i you know was trying to explain the the complications that i see in the whole business i said but here's the thing you spend your early, you, you spend your late teen, early twenties at the Playboy Mansion, and I guarantee nothing good's going on there, right? Nothing no, good's no, coming no. from that, right? So, no. so, so I I look back and I say, now maybe, uh, maybe you know, there's with, with 30, 40 years of innocent Bill Cosby, um, which it seems like there was, right? you know that that he did some dumb stuff or even some evil stuff some uh that that was that everybody was doing at the playboy mansion because they're at the playboy mansion and um and then he tried to live and 
and he tried to then follow on that with an upright life, right? Let's say that's exactly the story as it happens. The Playboy Mansion is not a place where goodness and virtue is is encouraged. Yeah, man. Right? In fact, very discouraged. Um, Hugh Hefner was an open. Uh, he he was an uh, an open. Um, he was a follower of Nietzsche. If you watch the early um, TV show, Playboy TV show, which was um, called After Hours, um, which is there's no nudity or anything, is like actually on television. Um, the he argues for Nietzsche as the greatest philosopher ever. <laughs> that they're great. That nihilism, um, that nihilism, that and it, the that you define everything by what it's not leaves us open to um a pure uh pure pursuit of pleasure with no guilt and no shame right and so that's why he thinks nietzsche is the greatest philosopher and then he built his empire on that principle you hang around there it it might look beautiful from a middle distance but you hang around there and that's that's going to be an ugly ugly place Mm -hmm. so um cupid that's the false Cupid. And so um, whatever it else you can say, you can say Bill Cosby was brought down by the false, by his, um, his willingness to follow the false Cupid as a young man. So can um, you also consider it that that woman in Proverbs who's been playing with cinnamon? Right? Yeah, she's, been pl- she's been playing with cinnamon. She's yeah, been honey. playing it out. She's, she's figured out how to uh she's got the the uh the honey shaped tongue the honeycomb shaped tongue and and she says hey my husband is away right <laughs> you, um well if you it, you shouldn't be walking by her house over and over and over yeah, um but that's what the false cupid will do uh is cuz that the um it's a pretty door but the the steps go all the way down mhm mm-hmm. to hell yeah so then you get to the point of the false Cupid and then the antitypes to the false Cupid. The antitype of Cupid. Mm. So not the anti yeah, so so then you get uh the antitypes of the false Cupid um and the antitype so he says antitypes to the false Cupid, and then he also talks about the antitypes of Venus and Cupid. So first type and antitype. Yeah, yeah, right? so break break that down for me. Yeah, so um t- the the uh, type and antitype is a literary device where you've got um, a character that holds a particular role in the in the story that is the a, the a character that's coming in advance, right? So David, as the king of as the king of Israel and the the killer the you know the slayer of giants, the king of Israel, the bringer of peace, the you know all of those things, he is the type of the of Jesus when Jesus comes and Jesus is the anti-type right so um or Joshua the same thing too yeah Joshua yeah so um you've got lots and lots of types I mean, Jonah is type, we're told yeah. specifically he's a type of Christ now um a Christ figure is different than a type in the, in the sense that Jonah isn't really a Christ figure um in the sense that he is disobeying God 
the whole time, right? A Christ right. figure right. voluntarily gives himself. And that so a Christ figure is a different type. It's a literary device also. It's a different type of literary device. Mm. The, um, the, uh, the type is a way of setting up the vocabulary that you need for a later to understand a later character right. in a literary sense. Right. So, um, so when you start talking about the, um, the antitype of the false Cupid, um, what you're talking about um, later characters. So you've got this false Cupid, then later characters that come along and the false Cupid has given you the vocabulary you need to understand these particular bad guys. Mm. The antitype of the false Cupid is a way of understanding uh, the false Cupid gives you uh, the vocabulary you need to recognize particular bad guys. And so sometimes um, you know, this is something that, um, that, you know, uh, Shakespeare does this sort of thing. Well, where he'll set up, uh, he, he'll use a character to set up the, um, to, to set up what you need uh, to know to be able to understand when the character makes the wrong decision right um it's it's a matter of images and uh uh patterns and shapes right so you're setting up the images and the patterns and the shapes so you can recognize when something happened when so you have the, a way of saying oh he's acting like um, right, right scripturally he's he is acting like david now when G, when jesus goes up on the mountain in order to give um he, the the beatitudes right. right you can say oh he's an anti-type of moses right he's the giving the new law of the new covenant right so moses gave the law of the covenant from mount sinai jesus gives the new law when he goes up on the mountain in order to deliver the Beatitudes, which are like a new form of, uh, they're they're a new law like the Ten Commandments. Um, so it's a image building, vocabulary building, literary device. So the the false Cupid gives um, Edmund Spencer the ability to quickly identify what goes wrong with certain characters. So when you, when you meet certain monsters and they're beautiful, the, it's a beautiful woman um, at, on the front, but then you get to the back and it's a, a devouring monster, right? Well, the false Cupid has given you the vocabulary you need to be able to say, and now this, um, th this, this monster is doing what the false Cupid is that, an incarnation of the false Cupid or a new false, a false Cupid arrive, uh, the doing the work of the false Cupid, that sort of thing. So then, okay. Okay. Work with me. I'm just working from our earlier conversation. So then the new snow white that's coming out, is it laying the groundwork for an anti-type so that when you see the prince, he's the bad guy or I, I mean, who knows how the story is going to play or, or, yeah. or, or when you see somebody trying to save you like, Oh, that's 1937. You know, it's like, like, are they setting up in their way that they're doing their story to, so that it's following that same sort of rhythm where, oh, this is, but it's flipping it. It's completely flipping it. You know, so n now guys who want to be prince and want to take care of women, they're oppressive. 
and they're the way they're creating this story, they're creating the antitype so that you can see it. Once it once starts happening, it's like, hey, I'll open up a door for you. <laughs> what is this, 1937? Right. Right. right? That's, what, well, that's what it's doing, right? So that's how fairy tales function in our conscience forming. They give the type, they are the types. Mm. Right? They're um, and this is this is exactly that quote from Carl Jung, the archetypes. Mm. Right. They're they're giving they give our imagination they give our conscience types so that we can recognize the antitypes in our life or which which character we are the antitype mm-hmm. of and which character other which people which people are the antitypes of different characters right so this is this is why young's philosophy is so important because this is one of the things he gets right yeah. um and but that's coming from a scriptural understanding of the, you know the the story of history the the world is full the of antitypes and um we remember when we talked about freud yeah yeah so freud what he wanted to use for the types of characters for the archetypes was all greek mythology this is why we talk about the oedipus complex because he's trying to develop this uh a psychology based on the types of the the that um inset so he still assumes yeah the unity of of humanity and the unity of the cosmos and that there are types that are given to us in mythology and then we are we identify which or a psychotherapist identifies which antitype we are currently playing mm, um, based on our, our experience, right? He's the priest. Yeah. So, um, but the scriptures act, do actually function that way, but, but not alone. The scriptures function that way and establish people to uh, people as the kind of creatures that continue sub creating stories, sub creating types. Um, right. So the, the wisdom of mankind, uh, through the ages is delivered from age to age through stories that give the um, the next generation's imagination types through which they can identify the world. Freud wanted to circumvent the scriptures um, as that kind of literature mm. and replace it with Greek mythology. Right. So um, like we, we, when we read the Bible, we often do this unknowingly. Like we read the story of the good Samaritan and we say, man, which character am I? That was convicting because I saw myself as the antitype of the Levite that crossed the road. Mm. Right. I've, I see myself there. Um, We do this all the time. We're created to do this. This is a good thing to do. Um, The question though, is which stories do we take as fairy tales? Um, I've been, joke i've been semi-joking for 15 years 20 years probably that the superhero movie is giving gives gives kids the the uh the types the the archetypes for their conscience and that that's a good thing right that's about the only thing that's holding the generation together is superhero movies now Mm -hmm. we're getting rid of those too Right. Um, Actually, I think we're just re. Well, we're taking the virtue out of them. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Which is yeah. the virtue right out of them. And comics books did that. That's what the superhero narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I and mean, that's what the movie, the iron giant is about. It's about the formation of the, uh, of the conscience of a giant robot through, through, um, through comic books that is what makes him able to turn his strength that was intended for evil was intended for war it was intended to be a death dealing strength into a life protecting strength this his conscience is rebuilt by comic books it's, it's a okay brilliant so, movie did it no so you got australia who is seeing the falling apart of the family and particularly husbands and men and that their dads are horrible to their kids and they're like you know what we need a type bluey yep right <laughs> we need to we need to we need to help we we need to do something to inform the consciences of these dads and so and it's funny that i've seen more men on social media saying uh i saw a picture the other day who i want to be when i grow up and it was like bluey's dad his dad yeah, yeah. totally yeah. you know and, and that's actually not they're not wrong like bluey's dad's a good dad yeah yeah the, the, what's behind it is like Australia knows that we don't have a good nation apart from families. And so, like, but I don't like the government. Oh yeah. I mean, that's, but I, they I don't do want it. the, I don't want the state doing that either. At the same time, they're looking around and they're like, somebody's got to do it. Yeah. Like, we we're gonna not going to survive. The Christians um, ain't going to do it. <laughs> when, I mean, I, I'm, um, my wife pointed me to uh, an interview recently with, uh, somebody who has um, been working, doing the research on post, post um, uh, transition surgery. Oh yeah, right? so yeah. When somebody transitions yeah. from one gender, quote unquote, sex to the other, right? When when you well, do those weird, those, been tracking that throughout Europe, and she did all this research, um, and then presented it. Uh, and then, and now those surgeries are, they're starting to be um, made illegal throughout Europe, right? Because they, they're 20 years beyond us on a lot of these things, yeah. but they're starting to realize um, that, that those surgeries are, are, are only making it worse, right? So, so they're starting, we're just starting to try and get those surgeries going and they're already on the back end saying, man, this is, this surgery is um, is actually an attack. This is not healthcare, right? This this these surgeries are an attack on um, people, and you know they're so the um, and but the reason it's so effective is because she just is telling the stories. Let me tell you the story of this person who went through the surgery. Let me, um, and this is what's ended ended up happening. This is what they thought would happen. This is what happened. This is what they thought would happen. This is what happened. And you start to realize in the storytelling that every single one of those stories undoes some sort of fairy tale that we're telling ourselves about self fulfillment. Mm. If I could, if false Cupid. It's so it's all false Cupid stuff. Wow. That um and the so the reality, so the fairy tales that really lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years um were the ones that each generation told it told it to the next generation because 
they found it to be true themselves in their life. So is this why Up resonated so much? Right? It was... Yeah. I mean, besides, if you just need a good cry, you watch the opening yeah, sequence but, of Up. But, I mean, yeah, but it, it, it referenced what the old world that we... Mm-hmm. That in a haze now passing, right? Right. That And it's so when... Because the reason that everybody cries at that spot um, is because they they know that that world is not available to it's not being offered to them anymore. It's, the world is the, the that whole world is gone. That kind of love, that real. Mm-hmm. We, I was if we just this is something my wife and I have been talking about a lot is the next generation of kids is they're not falling in love. They're not, you have a you have a, an upcoming generation of Lord have kids, and and um and you've got a couple of different kinds of responses from the church. You've got the people coming along and saying like, "It's all right, just find somebody that's a good Christian, just get married, have kids. That's the mission. You guys will fall in love eventually." Um, you and then you have the uh kind of throw up your hands like I we we wanted to get married. How come none of y'all? How come none of y'all want to get married? I don't understand. Mm. How come none of y'all are falling in love? I don't understand, right? The so you've got the, um, and I don't think either of those. I, I mean, you know, the the, the latter one, the, the previous one though, would have worked in a different world because they had a different metaphor. Exactly, it would have worked two generations ago. Three, yeah, and I think in some ways, three generations ago, that is what happened, right? Yeah, is people looked around and they were like, Ooh, we, you know, you, you see those, you, you hear the stories. Um, they, people didn't move. They didn't move around. Right. In the way that we do now. And so they, they knew, you know, you, you, you live in a small town. You only know 20 available females. Right. Right. And there's 20 available dudes. And yeah. everybody ends up married. What right? I uh, now. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's a di- they had a different understanding of falling in love, but it still was the expectation was kids pair off, kids kids grow up and pair off. Well, love right? love was inevitable. Like that yes. was it was inevitable. Of course you will. You just it just takes time. You'll fall in love, right? Like that's one of the things that like. I love about shows like that '70s show. Like it's got its problems. Um, there's some really funny writers on there, and, and some really crass writers on there, and um, it's got its problems. But the the mom and dad's relationship is amazing, mm-hmm. right? um, because he's just grumpy and crabby, and he's always like got a a snide word for the kids, and the wife is always like, "Honey, honey," right? Um, and she says the wrong thing, does the wrong thing. And he, he, he's always rolling his eyes. And then the kids leave the room and they're like, Hey, now that we're alone and they have this really sweet marriage that the kids are just always in the way of. Um, and they mm-hmm. can't, um, uh, and because, <laughs> and you know, neither of them really are grow or change or anything, you know, but you meet, but, but they're always, they always end up doing the right thing. Right. And right. when they, and they end up doing the right thing. And when they do, they find that attractive in one another. Right. right? And it's, it's, just, I was always, I always thought that really is the glue of the show 
was that that the the mom and dad's marriage is um is so uh is 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 the thing that ends up informing everybody else's all the kids desires right because the other neighbor marriages are messed up and weird and goofy and but you've got this one solid marriage and so all the kids hang out there <laughs> all the kids want to be in the basement of that house because that marriage is impenetrable right. um, even when they fight and they and you know everything and the marriage is impenetrable um nobody in the up the, the kids in the upcoming generation don't believe that they think that is a fairy a fairy tale in the other sense of the word right that that that's not real um, yeah. and so they don't have a vision for marriage and i think but i think the gospel is what restores that this is the and this is when he starts talking about the the antitypes of cupid right you get this uh and the antitype of nature it's in a footnote on page 42 um oh yeah uh where he he says uh casanus who was a um italian uh neoplatonist it's like an italian yeah kind of gnostic christian um tells us that the pagans gave God many names, including Venus and nature. Um, and, and he's in, he's commenting on uh, the fact that you had, um, uh, he's that infinite unity precedes all distinctions where a man does not differ from lion and following Hermes, who was um, so hermetic theology in, Neoplatonism was like the secret, the secret theologies. So Hermes hermeneutics comes from that. It's the the un the unpacking of what's hidden underneath. Hmm. Um, so Hermes was the, the the cause of all comprises in himself, masculine and feminine. Yeah, I was reading that. Yeah. Um, so he would have understood and approved of Spencer's meaning meaning. Um, and then uh, quoting Leone Embreo, who I actually don't know, and I didn't get a chance to look up um, who he was, but uh, he wrote a, a Italian work called The Philosophy of Love. So he, um, in God, the lover, the beloved, and their love are all one and the same. And although we count them to be three and say that the lover is informed by the beloved and that the love de- derives from them both as from the father and the mother, yet the whole is one simple unity and essence. Um, and so love in a Christian understanding, and this is where the the Neoplatonists are responding and trying to push the church back into a particular direction. Um, love is a creative force, right? Uh, love brings things into being that weren't there before. Mm. And, and that uh, because God created out of his overflowing love, all of this is made of love. If I heard you talking about that love spills right. over. Yeah. Love spills over new things come into being, um, <laughs> you know, Babies, <laughs> babies, right? And and that God, He literally baked it into creation. Mm. 
that love is such a powerful thing that when a man and a woman fall into love, whole new beings pop into existence that did not have a pre-existence, right? And this is where the, um, you know, Plato believed in the pre-existence, uh, but there's nothing, there's no pre-existence in Christianity, whole new things pop into existence, but he said it starts before the baby because a family is a whole new thing in the first place, right? When a man and a woman get married, a family is a, is, is a unit, is a covenantal unit that didn't exist before. And because of that, uh, the love brought, so baked into the relationships of men and women is this creative power of love. There was, there was no Mr. And Mrs. Jason Farley or the Jason Farley family until we got married. We take vows and we get married a new thing, a new unity. And it's because the unity is such that it has its own essence. Mm. We've talked a little bit about essences and, you know, but that there's a, the essence wasn't there before. Right. right? There, there was no Mr. And Mrs. Jason Farley. There was no family. Um, There was, you know, and so the it's a new thing that didn't exist that has its own essence as a unity shall leave his father mother yeah this is back to yeah. genesis right so ba- all the way back in genesis you it's a world in which um new things really are created by love mm. right and then out of that love then new human beings pop into existence so love is um, so, so when they said they called God Venus in the ancient world, or they called God nature in the ancient world, um, it's not a, um, it's what, what he's saying is Venus as a divine power, a divine creative power, um, he, how he explains it is that it's like a shaft of light that comes from the sun right and shows you something that's real and if you follow that shaft of light you find the origin of it right and they called the shaft of light that they knew they they called the shaft of light venus mm. and if you track the you track the shaft of light back to um what does he uh what does he call it uh the cause of all, right? You can follow the shaft of light back to the cause of all, which is uh, Aristotle, right? Um, Arist- that's what Aristotle calls God, the great cause, the, the the first cause, the origin cause of all. So he says, when Venus, when you look around and you see people falling in love, but and then he says nature because animals do it too, right? That um, and this is the that opening of the the opening chapter. The opening chapter of of Chaucer. This is Chaucer. This some of this is behind um, what he's talking about. What Edmund Spencer is talking about in the general prologue of Chaucer. When the sweet showers of April have pierced the drought of March and pierced it to the root. Mm. Right now, so <laughs> he says he he uses just a straight down the middle sexual metaphor in the first lines the first the first couplet of chaucer is that april 
um, he, April is the germinating partner of nature and March is the uh, receiver of germination. Is that, is that a nice way to put it? Right. Sure. That, so, but, but think about, think about how he's using this metaphor, right? That the, the moving forward in history of nature, right? As history moves through, uh, through time, that the next month impregnates the previous month, right? This is a really complex metaphor, right? Um, that, that we, that time, because time turns out in God's providential building of creation, time turns out to be necessary for um f- for the creation of new things or the the renewal of things um that april can impregnate march that came before it and produce all of the uh new life that that is born uh of time right so that time god has baked into time the way that um the the uh baked into time and into the sexuality of mammals and you know all the uh the same image the, the regenerative uh, that the regenerative power of love the regenerative power of beauty right? um and so he says and then every and every vein is bathed in that moisture whose quickening or life-giving force will impregnate the flower right so the so why does it rain in april because march was dry and in order to get pregnant you need to moisten the receiving end of the impregnate <laughs> this is i don't know who's yeah, listening so i don't know what words i can use but uh, but basically to, to um time yeah Go ahead. yeah so so um he so because you have in the flower you have the same sort of um i've i've got to just get go for it. it go I'm for gonna. it let's go for so, it so get the kids get if you're it. listening go ask your parents to listen to this before they but basically so april comes along the rains come so that the vagina of March will be wet enough for to be able to be pierced by the penis of spring, right? And he says the same way the flowers have male and female, mm. right? Right, and but they need the water as well, right? So he he says the way that the bodies of men and women work, and the way the cycles of time and the seasons work and the way that flowers work. And then he goes on um, to, to, this is about line eight. He says, and when the small birds are making melodies, melodies that sleep, that sleep all night with long, with uh, that sleep all the night long with open eyes, right? Mm. They go to bed. But their eyes are open because they're busy making babies. Nature mm-hmm. so prompts them and encourages. Then 
people long to go on pilgrimages. Right. We've so, talked about this poem before. We've talked about this before, but it's the same thing that the so it's the he's it's the same thing when you talk about the antitype of Venus, mm. right? That God that that God built into the world the type of mm. love of love that brings new life, love that gives life, love that impregnates and um, impregnates and brings new things into the world that have their own essences that are separate from the thing that created it. Right. Um, which is says he's, he's saying that this is all built po- that the, that the world is the kind of poem. The world is a kind of place where two people that love one another come together and a, new person that is not either of them that takes a piece of both of them, but is not either of them comes into existence and has its own story before the Lord, but was created through the love of these two people. Right. And he says that. And then he says, but nature is filled with this, right? So you've got an apple, uh, the, there's a, a, pot, a part in here where it talks about the west winds carrying all this along, right? You've got an apple tree um, with female flowers. Uh, a bee comes and lands on the male flowers of a different apple tree and comes and impregnates this flower um, by bringing the, the seed over from that male flower to this female flower. And an apple is born. And then you take that apple and you plant it. And then... Uh, a whole new tree comes up with its whole own story with its whole own essence, right? Just that happens in the, it happens in the natural world. It happens with people. It happens with animals. It happens with birds and mice and everything. And he says, and it happens in the passage of time where each, uh, each winter brings forth spring. Each spring brings forth a summer. Each summer brings forth uh, a, 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 fall and each fall brings forth a new winter and each one is its own but is born out of the other and that it's love that is the uh the that time is impregnated by love with the future god's love has impregnated time such that the future is born out of it Mm. so so this is where this understanding of a unified cosmos it's so what c.s lewis is saying is it, and um, and Alistair Fowler, who helped helped with the putting together of the book, what they're saying is the view of the cause of a unified cosmos that is um, animated by love is so different from a mechanistic understanding of the world that people are misunderstanding. When they pick up, they 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 understand each word, they understand each sentence, but they're misunderstanding the point that Spencer is making because he doesn't have anything like a mechanistic worldview. Mm. So his view of the world is so fully unified, and the unifying force is the love of God. And then the world then reflects that by finding a overflowing by by love creating a unity that overflows into the creation of new essences new things that didn't exist before right it it's a it's it would be i think considered probably a magical worldview in by modernists or by me- mechanists 
but it's not really a magical worldview. It's a love-driven worldview. It's a fundamentally love-driven understanding. Um, so the cosmos turns in this view of the world. And C.S. Lewis talks about this in, um, in his book on the medieval cosmology, that the, the cosmos turns, right? You look up into the sky, the stars move out of a love for God. God has that that's the power that pushes them right so when you say what cause what makes gravity work the medievals would say well the love of god right they're above the moon and so they're not affected by sin so they are they are still the the sky is still motivated by the, by pure love and so it stays in its liturgical position and walks its liturgical dance and and uh, sings its liturgical songs it because it's continually motivated by pure love in response to its creator. And we say, well, what do you call that for us? Well, you call it gravity. I mean, we can call it gravity. Uh, that's fine. We don't know what makes gravity work. And so I'm fine calling it gravity. It just, but what makes gravity work? Well, love, love is what makes gravity work. I sound crazy right now. <laughs> no, into the, I mean, to the modern person, this is, this is crazy talk. Because um, it's it's a view of the world that is that there's a the fundamental the fundamental music under all of it is the overflowing love of the creator um, and the of the father for the son because all of this we're told is created to glorify the son. So this is why it's so hard for us to get into the mindset of somebody like Spencer because his understanding of the cosmos is so different. But that quote that you sent from the book, what's so interesting is he, cause he, as he talks about the, the audiobook quote, he talks about the, um, the, that he, 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 he fundamentally is a materialist young is, yeah. as he puts it into the hardwired into our biology is how he describes right, it. Right. Right. Um, but he says it's the collective unconscious that um, holds the archetypes together, right? That's um, that part um, the, is they used to call it the um, that man was a microcosm. Each individual man was a microcosm. And then humanity as a whole was a cosmos, was, was a world unto itself. And that then each subset of mankind right the city the the government the church um the family were a cosmos and that cosmoses run on a particular um run on a particular pattern right and that is a pattern that is either informed by love or mm. it's informed by rivalry right the curse brings in a rivalry informed cosmos but it's intended to, to run on love. And so whatever cosmos you find, it runs on love. Um, and so justice can be an outworking of love or it can be an outworking of rivalry. Hamlet shows you what happens when justice becomes an outworking of rivalry instead of an outworking of love. Um, he, uh, the, but, um, you know, something like uh, uh, Much Ado About Nothing is a, is a story about when when you can shift from rivalry to uh, to building small cosmoses of love, 
on how it ends up putting the world right around it. It so the microcosms get put right, and then it causes the macrocosm to to be put right, and the 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 evil people are forced out of the cosmo of the macrocosm at the end of Much Ado About Nothing because you put the microcosms right and you mm. get rid of the rivalries and they work on love. It's um it it's an understanding of the interconnectedness of all things that you have in that you have in Shakespeare and Spencer and Chaucer, right? In the, in uh, that the entire medieval world that we don't have anymore. So I think, so when somebody says, Hey, we got to put the world right. What should I do? And I, and, and I say, well, first start with getting your marriage, right? Well, what effect does that have? Well, in an interconnected cosmos, um, you don't get to choose the effect, but you know that it has a huge effect because mm. you know that your marriage is connected to everything else. And when your marriage is, you know, is out of whack, then you know that it's, a, it's causing other things to be out of whack. And when you can put it right and it's run on love rather than rivalry, uh, run on self-giving love and overflowing love, um, that that affects your kids, that that affects your neighborhood, that that affects your church, that that affects your city, your state your nation um and but not in a one-to-one like it's it's not something that we can control and track because it's not we did we weren't given those levers Mm. we were just we were given us because it's it's not a lever type of machine it's not what we're given yeah it's a it's it's a um it's a jurisdiction Mm. yes covenant it's a covenant it's a jurisdiction that we're given and going and trying to putting the other jurisdictions right without putting the jurisdiction you're given right um, means that you're not in your right spot to, to actually affect anything. It reminds me of the story of Naaman where, you know, it's like, you mean to tell me <laughs> if I want to fix the world, all you're asking is that I go and love my wife raise and baptize my kids, you know, love my neighbor, you know, and you're, and show, like, uh, show up to worship on Sunday, show up to worship, right. go, go to church, Just worship the be, Lord. On Sunday. Be, take your part in the choir, take your part in the liturgy. Yeah. And, and that's it. Surely there's more. Surely. Well, and, uh, the, why, why won't you come out here and tell me the truth? You know, the reality is there is more. You just won't know what it is until you put those things right. Because well, when we're faithful there, then God will start saying like, "Hey, hey, here, yeah, yeah, here's this too, right. here's this too, right?" And you and when your jurisdiction is running properly, it can handle more weight, and so God puts more things on it. Um, but but when it's out of whack, you know, you get, um, you see this a lot with politicians where, um, their marriage isn't strong, and then they get some political position of power, and things fall apart. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and because they their marriage wasn't such that it could handle that sort of pressure um it, so and this is why it's a legit question to say to look at somebody's marriage when they're becoming an elder and say well, our church is going to become like your wife how's your wife doing if you if you're a leader here you know um the, those things are all connected you they're not s- separable Oh, that's good stuff, man. Was there anything else inside of the antitype? 
Well, I mean, I, I think this is one of those ones that I think it's so far out of our, it's so far away from our normal assumptions. Yeah. Um, that, uh, that it's actually a, a pretty difficult. It was complicated. To... It was hard for me to read. Yeah. Um, to try and really so, grasp it. Yeah. Because, it, because you've got, so uh, his last paragraph that, that he writes where he says two aspects of Venus are touched on here in the second line. Clearly she is the planetary deity who is influencing men and beasts to amorousness, to falling in love to replenish the world. Sam, um, are you page 44? Page, page 43. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I said that. Yeah. We talked about Plato too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the, the first, however, expresses a less obvious and more audacious idea to understand it. We must turn to Timaeus, which is my favorite of the platonic dialogues, but nobody ever reads Timaeus <laughs> where Plato argues from the beauty of the cosmos that it was made from a pattern no less than eternal. Mm. Right. So Plato, he looks at, at the cosmos and says it, it, it fits together so well. It's the argument of, you still see this argument work really well for people. This is the one in um, that uh, when Doug Wilson is arguing with Christopher Hitchens, Hitchens says, this is the fine tuning of the universe is the one that I still quite, I don't quite, I don't have a good answer for yet. That's the hardest one to answer. Yeah. Um, and, um, because you wouldn't expect a, a big bang to produce a fine tuned universe because it, it was the lack of tuning that caused the big bang. Otherwise it would never bang. Yeah. Right? So um, how does the lack of tuning result in perfect tuning? Um, so the, uh, but this argument goes all the way back to Plato and the Timaeus um, that the fine he says but but the way plato puts it is it must it must uh our plato argues from the beauty of the cosmos that it was made from a pattern no less than eternal right so there must be some sort of eternal pattern that is impressing itself onto the cosmos Right. So this is the the where the the entire cosmos then is a type mm. of the eternal, right? Um and the eternal is the antitype. Right. So it's the the antitype of the eternal is impressed onto it. Now what Plato didn't understand was that the eternal is a triune community of love. Mm -hmm. that is one god existing in three persons that is the thing that's impressed onto the cosmos is the triune community of love that is one god existing in three persons so um, that overflowing love of god is what we would expect to find impressed onto the universe onto the cosmos everywhere um, and then we're told to look to to imitate it now the first book um that we're given is creation and the second book that we're given is the scriptures right but both of them are t telling us the same the same thing um you you can't just you can't find and discover the gospel in the first book the the good news about jesus christ in the first book um although 
now with history being a part of that first book, you actually, um, you know, you, you can actually run into Jesus long before you run into a Bible um, because the, the book of creation and history is getting longer and longer mm-hmm. uh, and has mm-hmm. come to envelop certain aspects of the good news in it. But um, the, keeps the, having the, the full, keeps having, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. But the full, and, um, uh, and I mean, that's oh, when we're going to run out, we're out of time. So we can't even go into the, the difference between this and the metaphysic of history that you have in, um, in the, in the ancient world, um, where as history moves forward, things get worse and worse and worse and worse right now, the ch- because the church has actually adopted a pagan view of history has adopted the pagan, either cyclical view of history, which is called idealism, um, or it's adopted the, um, the the view of history that the longer history goes on the worse things get uh, we've adopted those pagan understandings and have got moved away from a trinitarian understand post post-millennialism um, and optimistic premillennialism or the optimistic amillennialism um, that you're starting to see grow up more and more those are um, those are fully trinitarian but when you but paganism produces pessimism about the future um, because the further you get from the source, the less like the source you become. Right. Um, it's like telephone. Yeah. It's like telephone. Uh, paganism produces pessimism. Uh, but what you, uh, or the and the, all the cyclical views are fundamentally pessimistic as well. What you get with um what you get with a Trinitarian understanding with a Trinitarian understanding where the Trinity is fundamentally revealed itself uh, to creation through Christ uh, and Christ is fully revealed in the cross resurrection and ascension. What you get is a cyclical optimism where there are cycles of death and resurrection, but there are cycles of death and resurrection that um, are moving us uh, that don't have to, move uh, away from the source more and more because the eternal source of uh, of all things is the triune love of god overflowing and you don't run out of that you don't have less of that Mm. the more time goes on right so we're the kind of creature that need uh eternal love both um temporally eternal uh as well as infinite um to be able to be satisfied by it uh and so anything less than that, we're going to find unsatisfying. Well, that's so you find all of that functioning and working in a triune eschatology um, that and you lose all of that when you move away from either the Trinity or from the optimistic eschatology of that, that triune that the triune God has consistently given his people throughout history. Whoa, that was an argument so, from millennialism I was not expecting. <laughs> but it's all, it's all in it's all in this poetic understanding of this particular or this poetic understanding of the world that they that that Christendom had that we have lost because we've become mechanistic. Because the longer you run a machine, the more it breaks down. Right. 
Right. All right. So what's next? Moving up to chapter three. Uh, what's the next? Bel- yeah, Belphoebe, Amaret, and the Garden of Adonis. This is a really long chapter. If I remember. It really is. Because I started reading it because the last chapter was so short. So I'm halfway through it already. But do you just want to take a section and just go kind of the yeah. oh the image? Oh, I think we, chapter five. we can take we can take the section. Um, he let's take the section to to where he really starts to quote a lot um, of of it. Was that fifty? In, on page fifty three, he starts to talk about the cosmic af- activity. All right, so you want to go 53 to what? Uh, Well, we'll go up to uh, the end of 55. All right. Talk about the the inner, the fundamentally, the fundamental connection between the um, cosmos and mankind's living active uh, society. Okay. Ugh, I'm going to, that's, man. Bro, I did not, uh, okay, we'll stop there. Um, Give me one second. 